Welcome to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. We pray this message leads you both to know and show the love of Christ in all areas of life. We will now dive into our scripture reading, followed by this week's message. Good morning, good morning. Today, God speaks to us from Psalms 2 and Acts 13, 32 to 33. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, the holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of earth your possessions. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son or he will be angry and your way will lead to your destruction for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. We tell you the good news. What God promised our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. As it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have become your father. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Hannah. Uh, just a quick word, I love the, um, I actually have come to love the Christian calendar, so this is the first Sunday of Advent, and one of the reasons why I love the Christian calendar now is that what it does is that it actually reshapes the Christian's experience of time. And so if you want to talk about what does it look like for my life to be shaped by the story of Jesus, one of the most important ways that it's going to shape your life is if you re-understand your experience of time according to the story of Jesus. So if you're a Christian here today, I would really encourage you, if you haven't done so, get familiar with the Christian calendar because today is Advent and in that liturgical calendar, it's actually the New Year. So Happy New Year for this Sunday. But what I love about that is that in the Christian calendar, the New Year starts right in the place of our darkness and our sorrow, our suffering, even all the violence in the world. It doesn't shy away from that. It doesn't pretend like any of that's not there. It starts in the darkness. But then the Christian New Year begins with a waiting for a hope that must come to us from outside. Uh, it couldn't be any more different than maybe what I might call a secular New Year, where it begins with striving and resolution. It begins with a new self-resolve, whereas the Christian New Year begins and says, if there's going to be a hope, it will meet us in our darkness, and our hope is found in our waiting. Uh, the hope comes to us from outside. And so just in small ways, to experience time in a way that's shaped by the story of the gospel, and to see your life kind of gathered into the story of Jesus uh, is always a moving thing for me. So I encourage you to consider that. Uh, Today's the first Sunday of Advent. I actually love that the text that was just read to you is our very first Advent text. Did that feel like Christmas to you? All the judgment and wrath, the destruction and the fury. Uh, I love it because uh, it kind of functions to me. It's very jarring. So it kind of functions to me like smelling salts. It kind of jolts us out of all of our 
holiday sentimentality. So one of my favorite quotes is actually a Franz Kafka quote, and he said this. He said, we should only read the kind of books that stab us. A book must be the axe for the frozen sea within us. I love it. It is characteristically dramatic, probably overdramatic. But what I love about this psalm, and the reason why I love it as our opening Advent psalm, is that it acts as that axe for the frozen sea within us. Uh, it won't let us get lulled into all the holiday sentiment, but it actually says the coming of God on earth should feel like a threat to us all. And the degree to which it does not is the degree to which we've lost the message of Christmas, even in the midst of all the Christmas. And so come with me as we look at this uh, psalm. There is good news in there. I promise there is. Uh, but it's going to take us a little bit of time to get there. Right? So here's what we're going to do. The psalm clearly breaks up into four parts. So don't blame me that the sermon has four points. And that's where we're going today. Okay, so we'll start by looking at the rage of the nations. Secondly, we'll look at the laughter of God. Third, the gift of the Son. And then finally, the appeal of the Spirit. Okay, so first, let's look at the rage of the nations. If you could put up verses 1 through 3 there. Uh, these are the words that open up our Advent for us. It says this, Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and rulers band together against the Lord and against his knowing, saying, Let us break off their chains and throw off their shackles. Uh, so the psalm opens up for us with this panorama of all of the nations of the world. So engage your imagination here a little bit. You see all the kings, all the pharaohs, all the rulers, all the emperors deciding to come together to conspire against God and his one anointed. In other translations, they talk about how the nations rage in vain. They're plotting against God. And when they talk about this rage against God, the language that they use is we must break off their chains, throw off the, sh the shackles of God and his anointed. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because you kind of have to ask the question, what is it that has created this like, hostility here? Like, What's the threat that all the rulers and emperors of the nations feel that caused them to call this council of rebellion? What is it that feels like chains and shackles? Well, it tells us right there in verse 2. And the, claim, and the, the, the thing that feels like shackles is this. It's this claim that there is a God, verse 2, that there is a God and his anointed rules over them. This is the claim that causes all the kings, all the rulers, all the emperors of the world to rage in vain. The fact that there is one true God and that this one true God is the one true Lord. And the God of the Bible is a God who's on the side of the poor and the oppressed. It's a God, when he introduces himself, he says, I am the God of the poor, the orphan, the widow, and the foreigner. For all the, nation, the rulers of the nations of the world, the fact that this God exists is an absolute threat to their claims of absolute sovereignty. Because they know if there is a God, and the God is the God of the Bible, and his concern is for the poor and the weak, the needy and the oppressed, what they understand is that their claims to sovereignty are all frauds. And this was a radical truth. Look, if you think about any culture, or you think about the mythology of any culture, 
almost always what would happen, especially in the ancient world, but even so today, the mythology of any culture would oftentimes use the gods to justify and make sacred the way that their king uses power. All the stories around cultures, here's how we're going to explain that the emperor has absolute power, has complete divine right, and therefore it is not our place to question the way that the emperor uses his power. That religion was always used to sacralize and justify the status quo. So you think about the pharaohs of the earth. The pharaohs were all understood to be sons of God. The kings of Babylon were given a divine status. Even the emperors of Rome were worshipped as being amongst the gods. There's that famous quote that said, In the ancient world, all the gods were equally true to the people, equally false for the philosophers, and equally useful to the kings. This is how religion and belief in God has always worked throughout all time and all cultures. But then along comes this small group of people, utterly weak, embarrassing as far as its own exercise of power. And this group of people claims that there's actually only one true God and he has one anointed. And that this one true God, the one who made the heavens and the earth, is not on the side of the kings and the emperors and the priests and philosophers. He's on the side of the poor and the orphan and the widow and the foreigner. Do you see how threatening that message is? The message of ultimate accountability. That there is someone you will answer to. Feels like chains and shackles to those who attempt to wield power. And so there's no wonder why they bristle under this message. It makes sense now why the kings of the nations would rage and conspire and rise up against this God. Now you might hear that and you're like, oh, you know what, actually that's, that's really helpful for me. It makes me feel like way more comfortable with this, te- with this text, so thank you for that. But I want to tell you right now, don't get too comfortable Because the text is coming after you too. Because what the kings understand is that if there is a God and he is absolute sovereign, he's creator and maker and king. If that's true, all all the kings of the nations, what did they knew? They knew that they were not sovereign over their empires. You know what this means for you and for me? If there is one true God and king, it means you are not the sovereign over your own life. We make the same claims that the kings and the pharaohs and the emperors make. And we hold it with the same absolute insistence. And we say, there can be no one who has claims over my life. There can be no Lord who can tell me how to live my life. And so the rage of the nations, if you look honestly enough, is the rage inside of your own heart. Because here's what's true for all of us. If there is a God, you are not your own. And that can sound like really bad news. Or when you become a Christian, it actually becomes the best news 
that you can imagine. But there's something at the heart of the human condition that rages with the nations. That says, I don't want there to be a God. I certainly don't want there to be a God who can can make any claim over my life. And I certainly don't want to submit my life to him. So Aldous Huxley has this famous quote where he essentially is wrestling with this question of God and freedom and accountability and those sorts of things. And here in a moment of like really great transparency and honesty, here's what he writes. He says, if I'm honest, I had motives for not wanting the world to have meaning, not wanting to there, be a, there to be a God. So I decided that it had none. And I was able to find satisfying reasons to justify my assumptions. The philosopher who finds no meaning in the world is not concerned exclusively with the pure problem of metaphysics. He is also concerned to prove that there is no valid reason why he personally should not do as he desires. He says, for myself, I am, uh, as no doubt for many of my contemporaries, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially objecting to anyone who interfered with my personal freedom. Do you hear what they're saying, what he's saying there? He's saying, if there is no God, then no one else can have a claim on my life, but that also means that my life will have no meaning. But the flip side is true. If there is a God, your life actually has profound and eternal meaning but it also means that he has every claim over your life. Here's the one thing you can't have, and it's the one thing that we all think we can. You can't have a God that you will use to give you meaning and comfort, but then tell him you have no claim on my life. It's the one thing you cannot do. Do you feel the rage of the nations in your heart? Do you see how honest, how like dazzlingly insightful this psalm is to pierce into the darkness within. That this message that there is one true God who has absolute claim kicks up the dust of our rebellion deep within our hearts. So that's the first point. It's the rage of the nations. We all want to you a God that we can use to justify our power, but not one who will hold us accountable. We're just like the kings of the nations. We are no different. Okay, so that's the first point, the rage of the nations. Uh, secondly, let's look at the laughter of God. We're going to turn to verses 4 through 6. And actually, the text goes from troubling to even more troubling. So let's just trust the psalmist as we go there. So for verse 4, it says this, The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at these rulers of the nation. Verse 5 there. Got it, all right. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. Now, does that kind of rub you the wrong way? If it doesn't, you're probably lying to me right now. That God's response to the rage of the nations, that God's response to the conspiring and the plotting and the rising up, God laughs at that rebellion. He scoffs at them. All the kings of the world plotting together. And it doesn't even phase God. It's almost like God saying, like, oh, look, isn't that cute? Like, oh, they're all getting together. That's so cute of them. It doesn't phase the God of the universe because God's reign is so unassailable 
that even the greatest ways we can imagine to threaten the reign of God, he looks down from heaven and laughs at them. But it's not even just a laughter, because if you look in verse 5, laughter becomes wrath. It says he rebukes them in anger, terrifies them with his wrath. Not only does he make absolute claim on our lives, which is bad enough, he also tells every single one of us that he will come to judge with absolute and unrelenting justice. And we certainly don't like that. And some of you might be here, it's like, man, this is the first time I've been back at church in years, and now all I get it is this fire and brimstone. I'm sorry, but I'm actually not sorry. That actually this idea that there is a God who will one day hold all of us from princes to paupers, will one day hold all of us accountable with perfect justice is maybe one of the best pieces of news that our world today can hear. So here's what one commentator writes. It's a very quick quote, but I love it. He says this. If I could find it, there it is. It says, The wrath of God is not the irritability of God. It is the love of God in friction with injustice. Let me read that again. The wrath of God is not the irritability of God. It is the love of God in friction with injustice. Uh, This is what this message is. The problem is we love justice for others. We hate justice for ourselves. We love accountability for others. We hate accountability for ourselves. Because look, there's a really fascinating, again, contradiction in every single one of us. And over the years for me in pastoral ministry and talking with people who are wrestling with the faith, and people are coming with very real and honest, like intellectual challenges with Christian faith. But one of the things that I've found fascinating over the years is this. Like on the one hand, there's something within us that says, look, I look out at all the suffering and violence in this world. And we say, I can't believe in a God who would allow all of that. A God who sees all the suffering violence in the world and does nothing. I can't believe in a God like that. And so I say, okay, fair enough. But then we turn to a text like this. And then we say, I look at all the world and all the suffering and violence that's out in the world. I can't believe in a God who would do something in judgment of all the suffering and violence in the world. Do you see what I just said? We look at the violence, I can't believe in a God who does nothing. We look at all the violence and we say, I can't believe in a God who would do something. So what is it that you're looking for? What if what we need is actually a God who looks at a world of violence and suffering and says, of course I'm going to do something. And that something is justice and judgment. Maybe Huxley is right, actually, that our issue is not so much that we can't intellectually believe in God with our minds. Maybe it's that we actually don't want there to be a God in our hearts. And so a God who does nothing in violence, we say, I can't believe in that. But a God who promises one day he's coming to do something about all our violence, we say, we can't do that. The issue is not intellectual. Maybe the issue is spiritual. There's something in us that does not want this to be true. I had a call uh, earlier this week with a church planter who was planting um, up in, you know, neighborhood very similar to East Harlem. 
Uh, and one of the things that he did in the, in the initial call, which threw me a little bit off guard, he was like, hey, what is God teaching you about himself recently? And I'm like, oh, I thought we were going to talk about church planting. So it kind of like, you know, kind of threw me all off. But the first thing that came to mind was this sermon. Like I was wrestling with this sermon. I was like, ah, man, I don't know. I got to stand up on Sunday, the first Sunday of Advent, and tell a bunch of people that the wrath of God is good news for us. Right, this, is what, this is what God's trying to show me right now. And his response to me was actually remarkable. He said, Abe, when I think about all the wrongs that I've experienced in my life and all the people I've had to forgive, like all of the obstacles that came at me, all the ways that I experienced genuine injustice in my life, and when I think about the people that I pastor and the ways that they've experienced these same kinds of wounds, when I think about all of that, he's like, I could do all the forgiving I need But in the end, there's still a wrong that needs to be righted. You can't therapize, counsel your way out of the wrongs of the world. You can do a lot of work to forgive and to offer forgiveness and to be forgiven. You can do a lot of work to reconcile. You can do a lot of work to find healing. But in the end, all of that inner work still leaves unresolved the outer reality that there is a wrong that one day must be right. And so he said this. He said, Abe, judgment day is the only thing that has kept me from trying to get revenge. Judgment day is the only thing that has kept me from trying to get revenge. And so this news that there is a day coming that's promised in those verses when all sin and wrong and hatred and greed, where even tyrants will one day have to give account. That's incredibly good news. That the laughter of God, which was so troubling for us, is incredibly good news for anyone who has suffered unjustly. It's this message that there is an utterly sovereign God who despite all of our best efforts, his justice cannot be thwarted. His judgment cannot be escaped. What if that's good news for all of us? So that's the second point. Uh, So is this feeling like a Christmas sermon to you yet? Not yet, right? We're going to get there. Point number three, which is the gift of a son. Let me read verses 7, 8, and 9 to you if you could pull that up. And now you might be thinking, okay, this is where it starts to feel like a Christmas sermon. Almost. We're getting there, okay? 7, 8, 9. Verse 7, I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I've become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. And verse 9, you will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Right? You're like, oh, it almost got there. And then it had to end with dashing people with pieces like, like, like pieces of pottery. But here's what's interesting. So the gift of the sun. This is, to me is fascinating. So remember, the kings of the earth have spoken. They say we want to throw off the chains of this God. We don't like an absolute God who, is, who has absolute claims over our lives. We hate that. So the kings of the earth spoke in verses 1 through 3. God the Father responds in verses 4 through 6 with his laughter. He says, my justice is unassailable and inescapable. I am inevitable, is what God is saying there. Okay? And now we have in these verses 7 through 9, it's not the nations, it's not God the Father, it's now this mysterious figure, the Son, 
who steps forward. The son is the anointed one that was mentioned in verse 3. And he says now in verse 7 and 8, I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. Now here's the question. Who is this son? Now on the one hand, if you've been around Redeemer Church long enough, you're like, we know who the son is. Is Jesus, right? But let's pause it. If you were in Israel reading this psalm and you came across this son figure, do you know who you would have assumed it was? It was the king. It was the king of Israel. And so most scholars would say Psalm 2 is a coronation psalm. And what that means is on the day that a new king was crowned in Israel, this might have actually been the psalm that was sung in that coronation service. And in fact, these verses, verses 7 through 8, may have been the very verses that the new king himself would have to say as part of that ritual of that coronation service. So this is a moment where Israel is gathering together, They're crowning a new king, and that new king says, Today you have become my father, I have become your son, I will make the nations your inheritance. That's probably what's happening here. So for most of Israel, this son is David. It's Solomon. It's those kings who came in the line of David. Now if you hear that, and if you're paying attention a little bit, isn't that problematic Didn't I just say every other culture uses their religion to shore up the power claims of their king? That they say, well, our king is the son of God, is divine. So you can't question our king. Isn't that exactly what's happening with this coronation psalm? Isn't Israel doing exactly the same thing? And at one level, the answer is yes, because if you know the story of Israel, David becomes king. But over time, that sense of divine right, that sense of divine entitlement gets to his head. And what does he do? He says, well, I can exploit any woman that I want if I desire her. So he has, commits adultery with Bathsheba. I can kill any person I want that gets in my way. And you see the story of these kings and this metaphor that I've become the son of God begins to do its work and corrupt. And you get to Solomon. Now he's marrying all these different wives. He's rich. And this message that I'm entitled to act as I please. And you go down the row, every single king. Imagine every single king who said these very words at some point starts to see them as above accountability. Starts to see themselves as the kind of king who can act however I want. And so over Israel, this language that today you are my, you have become my father, I have become your son, this, this, this language that started off as a metaphor becomes this myth that says every single king we've had falls short of this king that we know we were meant for. And so this metaphor becomes this myth and suddenly Israel says, is there a day coming when God will send the right king, the true king? And here's where we get to Christmas. The great surprise of the Christian message is not just that this metaphor became a myth. The surprise of the Christian message is that this metaphor became history. It's not that God would take a human being and treat them metaphorically as a son. It's that God would send his only one truly begotten son and would enter into history 
And this metaphor, which became myth, which became this longing, ends up being a promise that spoke far more truly than even the psalmist knew that he was speaking. The metaphor became history. And we learned that the child in the manger was not like a son of God, was not given the status of a son of God. The child in the manger was actually the son of God who came unlike any of those other kings who came and used every ounce of his kingly power to divest himself of all that glory, to empty himself of all that he was entitled to. He came as the one king who used all of that divine prerogative to pour out his life in humiliation and suffering. That he came to you and said, I see the rage in your heart. I see how much you hate the judgment of God. And he came and he said, I'm coming this first time not to be the one who bears the rod of justice to shatter you to pieces like pottery. I'm coming to you right now to bear the rod of God's judgment, to be shattered like pottery in your place so that you could have hope, so that you have a message of forgiveness, so you can escape the inescapable justice of God. And that's why the psalm ends, I'm getting ahead of myself, but in verse 12 at the very end it says, blessed is the one who takes refuge in the anointed. Friends, have you taken refuge in Jesus? Do you find him as the one who would cover you, who would bear the rod of God's wrath upon his own back? The one who would be willing to be torn to pieces so that your life can be put back together? Do you know what it's like to give your life to Jesus, to find him, to find that the judge is also your refuge? How is that even possible? That the king has become your servant. And so Acts chapter 13, which is another part of the text that we put before you, it reads like this. This is by the time we get to the New Testament. The apostles say, we tell you the good news, what God promised to our ancestors in, in Psalm 2. He has fulfilled for us their children by raising up Jesus, as is written in the second Psalm. You are my son, today I have become your father. You see how the early church understood this? They said, oh, it is a coronation psalm. And you want to know when that coronation service happened? It's when King Jesus died to free his subjects from the justice that was coming. But when the final enemy could no longer keep its hold on the King Jesus, he rose again from the grave. And upon his resurrection, the coronation psalm kicks in and said, this is now my son. This is the king you've been looking for. The resurrection and ascension of Jesus is the coronation of the one true king. It's the gift of the Son. The person who said all this best, I think, is Loki, the brother of Thor, the god of mischief. He said this, this is in the new you know, Disney Plus series. He says this. He says, annihilating is easy. Raising things to the ground is easy. 
trying to fix what's broken is hard. Hope is hard. And for Jesus, hope for you wasn't just hard. It was costly. It cost him everything. Annihilating would have been easy. Raising all this to the ground would have been easy. But hope is hard. Hope is costly. And there's a God in the Bible who says, I will pay the price so that you can have this hope. It's the gift of the Son. And so forth and finally, this will be quick, verses 10 through 12 give us the appeal of the Spirit, the rage of the nations, the laughter of God, uh, the gift of the Son and the appeal of the Spirit where it says, uh, verse, yeah, starting in 10, Therefore, you kings, be wise. Remember, he's talking to you and me when he says, you kings. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Verse, one more, 12. Kiss the son or he will be angry and your way will lead to your destruction. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Here's the appeal of the Spirit to you right now. Kiss the sun. Come to the sun. Take all that rage and let the love and the sacrifice and the love of the sun melt it into a deep affection. Serve the sun. Give your life to the sun. Celebrate his rule, even with trembling. Come before him right now. Give your life to him. Lay down the swords. Lay down the rage. Lay down the rejection. There is no other king. There is no other God that you can give your life to that would ever do this. Jesus has done it for you. In this first advent, it's the advent of Jesus as the one who would bear judgment. But there is another advent coming. And this is good news for our broken world where the same king will come again. And this time he will bring that judgment. Friends, turn to him now. Give your life to him. Kiss the son because of the love that he's given to you. Let's pray together. Lord, we see the rage of the nations in our own heart. And so, Lord, we ask, Father, that you grant to us the courage and the honesty to name that before you. That we don't like the idea. We don't want there to be a God who can lay claim over all of our lives. And though we know that if there is a God, his justice would have to be unassailable, inescapable. So, Lord, we remind ourselves that's good news. But ultimately, Father, in this Advent season, we give you praise for the incredible gift of your Son. Annihilating is easy. Raising things to the ground is easy. But hope is hard. And it costs you everything. So right now, Lord, would you grant to us by the power of your spirit, help us kiss the son, the one who laid down his life for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeemer East Harlem Podcast. For more information on our church, and how you can support what God is doing through our church, go to www.reh.nyc.